Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class. A society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for an elite few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create space for folks on this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who might not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. But what unites us is one common goal, and that's to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and tonight we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, We've got a small uh, panel discussion crammed into the studio today with members of the local DSA and Food Not Bombs chapters representing a real Justice League, if you will. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign fresh off the New Hampshire victory as primary fever dips down south. So, uh, hey everybody, can you uh, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourselves? Hey, uh, my name is Josiah. I'm um, a local Charlestonian, I suppose, transplant. I've been here for some time and I work with Local Food Not Bombs. Been doing that for a couple years. Um, I am... Broadly speaking, anti-authoritarian, anti-capitalist, and really just kind of work to make a world, like you said, where people have the opportunity to thrive. I love that. It's awesome. Uh, Sarah, and I am currently a co-facilitator for Charleston DSA, and I have been in Charleston for about seven years now. Hey, y'all, this is Taylor. I'm usually behind the boards, as I am today, for every episode of Renegade Paradise. Um, But today I thought I'd run myself a mic in here and maybe jump in here and there and join the conversation. Yeah, so like I said, a little bit different tonight. Um, We've got Taylor's voice in our ears, so it's kind of fun. It's kind of different. So yeah, we're going to start out the uh, dis- the, the discussion tonight by saying that um, I think we have a unique opportunity here in South Carolina to uh, do our part to help uh, Bernie Sanders win the South Carolina primary. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden was heavily favored to win this state, and honestly, that maybe still might be a factor since he cut his losses early in New Hampshire and is making a beeline south as we speak. Um, but right now it seems very possible like we might break Biden's so-called Southern firewall and win the state for Bernie Sanders. Uh, Not only that, but we have the potential here to put the most qualified, most popular candidate with the best chance of not only simply defeating Donald Trump, but also working with those of us here on the ground to advocate for real material improvements in the lives of working people all around the country. Uh, so this is an exciting moment, and um, you know it's it's really getting a lot of discussion going, both in in uh, uh, DSA and in Food Not Bombs, and a lot of other uh, activist organizations here on the ground. Um, so we'll just get right into the uh, discussion. Um, and uh, y'all uh, kind of answered some of the question, uh, some of the first question right off the bat. Um, so I'll keep it a little bit shorter. Uh, what are your feelings on engaging with electoral politics in general? Oh, well, you know, uh, personally for me, in my, as I developed and came to understood what the American political structure really came to being and came to remove the illusion of choice, at least in terms of the way that it's been provided, uh, in kind of general American mythmaking, uh, I became very disillusioned with the electoral process. I did participate in 2016, but after that, and I really didn't see much of a purpose and, and came to understand that ultimately you're voting for the same side when you get down to core policies of both Democrat and Republicans. Uh, that being said, you know, it, it's exciting to see a movement for the first time come through and really show itself as being something uh, counter to traditional politics that we've been so accustomed to over the last 40 or 50 years. I was definitely pretty jaded for a while myself. I think the first vote I cast as an adult was, uh, well, first vote I cast was um, for Obama in 2008. And I think 
a lot of people read what they wanted to see into Obama's campaign. Um, and that obviously turned out to be pretty disappointing for more left-leaning folks, I think. Um, so I would say I was pretty jaded until maybe 2015. I saw Jeremy Corbyn winning the um, Labor Party election in the UK. And that was very motivating for me in terms of seeing a leftist electoral project that could potentially succeed. And um, then seeing Bernie Sanders' excellent run in 2016 and um, progressing from there, I think there's definitely a ceiling to electoral politics that maybe Bernie Sanders is very right on the edge of. Um, so I'm I'm very hopeful this year, but... Uh, this this is the last one for me. <laughs> hey, this is Taylor. Um, I guess I'll share a little bit of my background with electoral politics and kind of how I'm seeing it right now and who knows what the future holds, but we got to have some contingencies in mind. Um, but I think I'm maybe the oldest one here today. I'm 34. Um, so Got, got your beat, Taylor. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... My first foray into presidential politics was actually uh, around, before I could vote, I participated in a campaign circulating petitions to get Ralph Nader on the ballot in Virginia in the year 2000. I'm from Charleston originally, but my dad is one of the many folks who worked for the Navy and got transferred to Norfolk, Virginia when they shut down the Charleston Naval Base in 96. So at that point, I was going to school there. Um, Ralph Nader, um, you know, didn't end up winning, of course. And, you know, it became a very controversial thing among Democrats who then wanted to blame him for George W. Bush taking office. So kind of right off the bat, I guess I had a pretty... Uh, heavy exposure to this sort of idea within the democratic establishment that it's unacceptable to do anything to their left and that, you know, it's seemingly they'll kind of burn bridges and fight the left as hard or harder than the Republican party. Definitely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I've definitely been aware of that. I got really jaded. I've voted for John Kerry in 2004. I wasn't psyched about it. Um, that was my first time I was eligible to vote. I was like my first year in college. I went to UVA. Um, and then the year I graduated 2008, um, that summer while I was waiting for my first job to start, I went and volunteered for, uh, Obama for America, uh, to, uh, Obama's initial campaign in 08. I did phone banking and did a lot of voter registration and stuff like that. Um, I then got very uh, jaded with Obama actually in office with the drone strikes and breaking mm -hmm. promises where instead of stopping raids on medical marijuana facilities, he dramatically ramped it up. So it was a lot of issues that made me um, actually not vote for Obama in 2012. I just didn't vote. Um, and then in 2016, having been a longtime Bernie Sanders fan, I got re-energized again, really psyched. At that point, I was working for an environmental nonprofit that kind of tied my hands as to how much presidential campaign work I could do, especially for a candidate that's to the left, very to the left of the nonprofit industrial complex that runs the environmental movement in this country. They're all funded by the same handful of billionaires. And they're systematically neutralizing the left. But anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, so fast forward now four years and, you know, I am even more energized for Bernie. Yeah, I've been out texting, um, you know, phone banking, canvassing, um, trying to spread the word any way that I can. Tabling for Medicare for all, as we've talked about in a previous episode here with Bones and um, Nick. And uh, anyway, so I'm very hopeful. I think this is the most critical thing we can be doing is my perspective. I'm a, a DSA member. I joined in 2016. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this is kind of our moment of truth for like whether we can ever make electoral politics work for us again, or are we going to kind of descend further into fascism and get further and further out of reach from the people reclaiming public office? Yeah. Um, so a lot of different strategies, a lot of different 
uh, mindsets, a lot of different perspectives in the room tonight. And um, what I'm hearing from everybody is a willingness to engage in some level with electoralism, but it's definitely not uh, the end-all, be-all. Like, electoral politics um, has to be paired with a deeper sort of street-level um, advocacy. Does that sound pretty accurate? For sure. I mean, often when you kind of look at, well, when you look at the way that electoral politics is handled, for for a majority of people, it, it's almost like it's being handled as a weapon against them. You know, a lot of people come to understand, they go, okay, I vote once every two years, I vote once every four years for that big one that matters, and then that is essentially me being represented in a democracy, which really is not when it gets down to it that still leaves a majority of the power in somebody else's hands and it uh, disallows for politics to escape these sort of institutional bounds that liberalism likes to keep it inside of let's build on that uh topic for a little bit and uh taylor had brought this up a little bit earlier so um uh, talk to me a little bit about where you, heard, uh, where you first heard about uh, Bernie Sanders, kind of what got you interested in his message and how it kind of differs from uh, campaigns you may have listened to or, or participated in in the past. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, for me, my involvement or maybe the first time that I really heard about Bernie Sanders came in my college years when I... Well, when I learned that uh, he's one of the only candidates who sought for the legalization of marijuana. When I was growing up, one of the main injustices that I came to understand, even from like some strange, as some strange middle schooler running around in Georgia was, why are drugs illegal? This does not make any sense. There's very clear, while at the time I didn't understand it, there are very clear class lines and stratifications there that ultimately it does not represent some type of moral question like it's often phrased. So when I saw that, and honestly, I saw my first sticker, Burn One for Bernie, I, I became very excited and looked a lot more into it. And that was during <laughs> my initial kind of awakening to what was going on. I've always been a very political person. But at that time, for the first time, I was able to see, wait, this candidate, they're actually promoting ideals that are, that are different, like fundamentally different. They're approaching politics from a position that I've, I've simply never seen before. I've read it in history books, and I've I've read it in these kind of highfalutin academic papers, and I can see where maybe it comes from, but for the first time in applicable politics in this country, that seemed like maybe it could answer some of the questions out there. Something accessible and something that's talking about like real material issues, basically. Right. The real lives of people and how it's lived, not right. some far off trade deal somewhere with these concepts and terms that no right. one except for a lawyer somewhere understands. Right. Okay. Definitely. I think the first time I really heard of Bernie Sanders was in 2016 when he announced his candidacy and he was um, kind of stood out right away because that at the time was very clearly like that was Hillary's year and who would dare run against her. Um, so having the <laughs> yeah. sort of temerity to stand up to her and um, try to push her left, if not outright win, which he came reasonably close to doing. Mm -hmm. um, that caught my attention, and I have been a healthcare professional since I was 18. So Medicare for all, universal healthcare, um, that's a primary issue to me, and that was the first time I've heard that very seriously gained traction in the United States. Um, I've got a little bit to share on that front. Um, so back in 2004, I used to listen to this uh, progressive talk radio show called the Tom, uh, the Tom Hartman Show. Um, I think it aired on Air America and like a couple of old uh, radio stations uh, back in the early aughts. And there was a weekly segment on there called Brunch with Bernie. And, um, you know, I just happened to be listening to the show like I usually did. And um, I was really genuinely impressed to hear um, an elected official talk like I talk, um, like talk about actual things that mattered, like on a material level and not feel like I was being sold a fucking timeshare. You know, obviously this was, this was back, uh, during the, uh, this is back during the George W. Bush presidency. And, um, you know, I was paying a lot of attention to the anti-war movement. 
Um, and I was really kind of inspired by uh, Sanders' willingness to push uh, his anti-war message in the face of like just overwhelming and suffocating uh, patriotism, um, especially uh, from you know a family you know coming from a family background that was so strongly tied to the military and like right-wing politics. It was like nothing I ever heard before, and it was so refreshing to feel not so alone obviously you know as as time progressed you know i supported barack obama in in 2008 and 2012 uh bernie sanders still was you know pretty far to the left of obama pretty far to the left of of hillary clinton and really felt like the only candidate i've consistently followed for many years that didn't feel like a compromise Mm -hmm. um so that's personally why i'm a fan uh my politics have gotten still farther to the left since then uh to where honestly like bernie he could probably be be nudged a little bit farther to the left in in some situations and on some issues um but uh i am happy to have that conversation uh you know in in a future episode and 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 always am interested in in holding our elected officials feet to the fire well, why don't we have a little bit of it now? Yeah. I mean, oh, you know, okay. I, I think that that's a pretty important part, you know, is a much bigger conversation in DSA a year ago than it is now. Yeah. A year ago, the debate within DSA was whether we were going to endorse Bernie as a national organization. And there were a lot of people on the left who were very uncomfortable with that idea and ultimately, they ended up being in the minority, and we voted overwhelmingly to endorse Bernie, and we've been working hard since then. But there were a lot of concerns among folks on the left that putting our energy behind a social Democrat like Bernie, and let's be honest, you know, his policies are better characterized as social Democratic policies, more akin to FDR, right. than Democratic Socialism, which entails worker ownership of the means of production he's been pretty clear that that's not what he's calling for um i would support worker ownership of the means of production i think just most of the people i've spoken to in dsa would just about everyone as far as i know like maybe some people are just being quiet about it but you know we're we're explicitly a socialist organization I hold out my hopes that maybe Bernie's a secret socialist, but, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I can't prove that, and I can't really argue people to, like, bet the farm on that, you know? Right. But here's what I do believe. So I think one of the key pushbacks from revolutionary leftists on Bernie is that if we get these kind of suffering, alleviating programs he's calling for, like Medicare for all, free college for all, Um, you know, affordable housing is a guaranteed human right, Green New Deal, you know. The concern among some within the revolutionary left is that that will neutralize uh, discontent and the revolutionary spirit and preempt what's needed for an actual societal transformation into socialism, which is basically mass upheaval. Right. (laughs) And... I, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that argument and Mm -hmm. trying to like parse out sort of a good way to approach the question in practice, you know, not having a perfect crystal ball, you know? And I mean, kind of where I've landed with that is this. I mean, I think that if we turn out and energize as a new American left that really hasn't existed in decades, I think we could pull Bernie to the left. So it's critical that we get involved if we want him to be more left in the event that he wins. Mm -hmm. And he's certainly influencing the Democratic Party, pulling them towards social democracy. So in the immediate near term, it's hard to argue against the fact that these are really alleviating immediate suffering. Sure. Um, You know, whether throwing that out the window is justifiable for trying to foment revolution, I don't know. But, you know... In terms of what would actually result in revolution, I think I kind of have a different perspective. Like, you know, revolution wasn't about to happen under Trump, was it? No, like, it was not. Who, who was stockpiling weapons? I didn't get the memo. Nobody invited me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but if they blatantly rob Bernie of a one election 
with us running on this, okay, this is a capitalist platform of just more enhanced social welfare. We're actually throwing our leftist body of support behind this. And then you still undercut it and take that away and say FDR's too far left in 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's what might trigger a revolution. I mean, when there's millions of people mobilized, put, you know, scrimping and saving like many of us are to donate to Bernie out there in the streets working our asses off, and then the DNC robs him or Trump just refuses to concede and says, I'm a dictator now. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck are we going to do? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's going to be a bigger trigger for revolution than more of the same, because right now it didn't happen. And, and you know, I think we need a leader to unite behind that, you know, for better or worse, if it comes to that, he would be kind of the martyr figure that we would unite behind and actually fight for real socialism. So, you know, I don't see supporting Sanders as ruling out the possibility that that might be a scenario down the road. In fact, I think it makes it more likely. Right. There's this sort of idea that it has to be either or, I feel like. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can put yourself out there and and do your best to like achieve some small material victories while still keeping your eye on the prize. But at, at the same time, you know, that you're you're right there too. Like nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows exactly how this is going to pan out. We can only do the best we can with the resources and tools and 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 people uh that that we know and and uh places we're in. There's yeah. also I guess the point that, you know, alleviating suffering might reduce discontent. But it's also going to reduce a lot of the burdens that are preventing people right. from actively right. organizing within the working class. I think that's a really important part you bring up, too, because there is no revolution that comes from a, a, a destroyed population. I mean, you can take historical examples. For instance, you look at the Cuban Revolution, where that came from was not a multi-million person class of mobile seasonal workers there existed a class of about three to four million workers sugarcane farmers they'd come through they'd get about three months work until harvest was done and then that was it revolution came out of the mountains it came out of the peasantry class came out of people who could support it that's always one of the more difficult parts of it because too when you get into for instance like all of a sudden we're in november 2020 and trump is not moving once full fascism sets in, it's a difficult process once the state apparatus is moving and mobilized against you, because that's the reality. I mean, that's where unions come in handy. That's where these types of organizations come in handy. That's where community that's where mutual aid networks come in, in exactly. handy. Yeah. It's the ability to mobilize resources against a concentrated force. Let's keep moving and talk a little bit about uh, which part of the uh, Sanders campaign platform resonates with you the most and why. Um, to me, I think it's very tight contest between Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. Um, I think, especially in terms of sort of an electoral project, there's now more of an external clock on a electoral project. Um, I think Bernie is the compromise candidate in this respect. Like, that's the bare minimum we need to do and the bare minimum we should accept. Um, and then, obviously, Medicare for All, I think I'm personally transgender and everyone I know needs healthcare. Um, that cuts across, you know, across uh, race, economic class, gender, everything. You know, one of the important things for me um, really is criminal justice reform. I mean, I, I sort of brought it up in the idea of legal legalization of marijuana. It's a real funny and easy thing to laugh about. And it's a really interesting thing. But I mean, at the core of the United States, really, it still exists a slave state. We have a carceral state in in existence right now where millions and millions of people are in prison and are due labor to the state, essentially. I mean, the 13th Amendment very clearly states that there is slavery still in existence so long as the government deems you a criminal. And when you keep that in mind and you keep the context of who is imprisoned, how they're imprisoned, it's 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 black and brown bodies and it's and it's poor people really taking the brunt and still maintaining what we understand to be American capitalism today. So the legalization of drugs, the recognition of that, even even if it's in the context of our modern you know capitalist bourgeois fun 
uh, elections, just the recognition of it can really go a very long way in allowing people to understand exactly the processes that are at hand in front of us. Um, that being said, Green New Deal is, is vital for the future of the planet, regardless if you're American, French, or Russian, or from Zimbabwe. It's important to all of us to not destroy the fragile blue dot that we exist on. And, and there are no other candidates that take it seriously like that. Not that are in the election or in the race anymore, though. Yeah, I definitely got to echo Green New Deal. I mean, it's really hard to pit big, like, grand transformative policies like this against each other. Um, because, really, any of the holes that are left in their absence really just undercuts the ability of the working class to really live, like, a free life you know, in control of, you know, their economic livelihood and future. Um, you know, without Medicare for all, medical debt can wipe everything out at any time. You know, without access to education, it's going to be hard to do a lot of the things you might want to do. You know, without criminal justice reform, they can take away your freedom kind of arbitrarily and mm -hmm. it's profiting people, mm -hmm. so they're highly motivated to do it. Um, but I mean, the Green New Deal, you know, I guess if we got to make them compete, like climate change is a pretty immediate, like global emergency. 12 years. And it's so intertwined in like every other issue too. I mean, all the economic issues are going to be greatly exacerbated if we don't confront climate change on the scale that the Green New Deal proposes. Really, we need to do even more. But um yeah, you know, that intertwined threat of, you know, nuclear war as resources get scarce and there's mass mm -hmm. migrations as a response to climate change. Noam Chomsky talks about that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that we ultimately have to kind of stand behind the entire package that we have to transform the economy to be democratic and to, you know, guarantee that folks aren't going to have all these different fronts in life, medical, criminal justice, education, um, that could just undercut them at any time. There's a, there's definitely like a, a theme in this question where you can't necessarily take one of these proposals away and, and not significantly affect somebody within the working class in a negative way. There's one thing that uh, has been kind of on my mind when it comes to uh, what part of the Sanders platform resonates with me the most. Um, and that statement was, I'm willing to fight for someone that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a better way to not only describe this platform that we're fighting for, but also just the purpose of the left. We fight for people who we don't know. And exactly how that happens and what forms that take, definitely a lot of room for discussion on that front. Sanders has 33 different policy platforms uh, on his website. Um, one of them specifically, in calls, uh, specifically calls for doubling union membership, which is critical in South Carolina as we have the lowest union representation in the entire country. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on what I read, it's usually around 2 or 3%. These are all proposals that will change somebody's life. And I can't think of a better thing to fight for. And I, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, ultimately, too, is, is as someone else's life gets better, so does mine necessarily. Exactly. Like, we are not... It's not a zero-sum game. If... We're all somebody else's, somebody I don't know. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you know, back to that idea of, like, intersectionality and really having to fight the fight all at once. I mean, it, it's a heavy burden and to, to, to think about, let alone to, com to contemplate actually fighting and participating in, but also it's the burden set out in front of us. It just is there. And the reality is, is if we maintain as is, if we maintain global capitalism, it'll, the available market space will shrink as the earth floods and, and burns and the people are displaced. But ultimately, the, the, the winners, they'll win. You can't have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources. No, you cannot. Right. Let's keep that. Uh, let's put a pin in that and, and think about that as we go into this next question. Um, so obviously we've talked about how, uh, the Sanders campaign really focuses on meeting basic material needs for everyone. Um, and we listed a bunch of them, you know, in the past few minutes, 
what thing do you think that uh, so we'll, we'll kind of flip the script a little bit. What do you think Senator Sanders should pay the most attention to uh, as uh, the, the, the campaign makes its way into South Carolina? There's a large section of this country, and, and in particular, I think that due to the way that South, Carol- South Carolina's history and due to the way that South Carolina is organized, um, there's a large segment of our population, the rural population, that, that feels ignored. You know, they feel like um, there's, there's opioid crisis, they feel like there's economic disparity, um, and that ultimately the people and their towns and their livelihoods are vanishing as people are forced to move to urban and centers of concentration in order to find work and make a living for themselves. And w- we live in a very rural s- state. And you combine that with a long history of Republican uh, propaganda and people really kind of coming to this notion that Democrats have abandoned, Democrats do not care about people in in rural America. You know, there's, and then to combine that with notions of, of, of the Southern feelings of um, inferiority that national politics sort of places on the Southern, I want to sort of say culture, but just that idea, like, where does the joke come from when you're making fun of something, you put on a Southern voice. And, yeah. and it's it's disappointing. And even Southerners do it to themselves when we're making jokes with each other, yeah. because it's so ingrained in even our culture. Uh, you know, at South Carolina ranks 49th, 48th in education. We have right. one of the least developed health care systems, even while in the city of Charleston itself, we have the Medical University of South Carolina. There really are a lot of resources missing from this space. And rural Americans who are a major voting block and do absolutely have a right to be heard, have a right to benefit in the general growth of our country, but also human beings as a species, our ability to utilize new technology and to move forward in the future. You don't want those people to feel like they're, quote, those people, you know? Right. I think that's going to be an important part for um, Bernie to pay attention to when he's entering South Carolina. So just have that, like, that that compassion. We, we, may, we may not have everything in common, but we share certain struggles, and I see you, and, and I'll, I'll fight for you. Right, going to the people. Right. Get rid of this, like, 2000, 2004 kind of red state, blue state thing where... I think a lot of liberals in particular will say, we just need to write off the South and nobody's, nobody's going to vote for us there. And really, the margins are much closer than you think. And you're writing off, you know, this is the largest concentration of African-Americans in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, queer people are disproportionately in the Southeast. Um, so I think it's, it's ridiculous to say you can't win here on that, those issues. Absolutely. I mean, I I participate in Food Not Bombs, and I have a particularly hard left perspective, and I get a lot more favoritism than one might expect in this area. You know, it's really not, it's not that people do not believe that they deserve, or people believe that this is possible to have a utopian world. It's just that people, they've heard propaganda for so long that it, it's a truth to them. A lie can be truth if it's repeated enough times. I think just kind of strategy-wise for Bernie to try and win South Carolina, one of the biggest things he needs to look out for is where Biden's hemorrhaging base of support is going and why and how to appeal to them before they settle in with someone else. Um, and I think that there are probably a variety of answers to that. Um, you know, Biden was far and away the front runner in South Carolina and polls up until the past few weeks. Um, now it's looking like it could be Bernie. Um, but, you know, we've seen some interesting dynamics here that haven't been the same in some of the other states that we've paid a lot of attention to, like Iowa and New Hampshire so far, are the only two that have voted. But um, here in South Carolina, you know, Pete Buttigieg is not registering. I mean, maybe that could change. Um, you know, Klobuchar is, does not have a lot of support, even though she's pretty moderate and we're a fairly conservative state. Um, you know, Warren was doing all right, but she's slipping here just like everywhere else. Um, but who's on the rise? Steyer and Bloomberg, the billionaires. And who is the main voice against billionaires in American pop culture right now? 
Bernie fucking Sanders. <laughs> so in my book, I, I want to see like, how do we stop that, you know, that leak? How do we plug these leaks of voters who think, well, maybe we need another billionaire to fight the fascist billionaire uh, in office, you know? Yeah. I think we need to have that argument and win it. I think that we need to recognize that people are shifting in different fronts. There are more establishment-minded largely like white but some black democrats who are just going to go with you know who is the establishment choice in south carolina because they're pretty ingrained with the democratic party then there are folks white and black as well who are more like you know what fuck the dnc we're tired of y'all screwing over the working class and pretending like you're on our side for the black folks they're thinking we're tired of y'all taking our votes for granted never saying anything real particular for us and just expecting that we're not going to have a, any shot with the Republicans. And it, you know, it might seem crazy. I, I would kind of agree maybe, but as a white person, maybe not my place to make a strong argument on that, but Blexit, if y'all know what that is, the like turn, I think it's turning point USA funded, like, but it's a national campaign playing on the Brexit, um, you know, the British exit from, the EU right. as rather a black exit from the democratic party. And, you know, we've seen some very like high profile activists here in Charleston get hired by that movement recently and they're spreading the word and they have a lot of followers. Right. I'm not going to name any names right now and call anybody out, but you know, there's, there are a lot of voters who might be won over by a populist argument um, who are otherwise disenfranchised with the DNC, and that's just gold for Bernie Sanders to fill that niche. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's there's definitely that that populist sentiment right now, and you you're definitely thinking you know strategically like capitalizing on the opponent's weakness here, and and that's especially you know because I I think it's not safe I, I I think it's safe to say that Bernie Sanders, although he's you know, he has a really great opportunity to win South Carolina. He's probably st uh, still seen by a lot of folks as the underdog. So if you're the underdog, if, if you're, you know, if you're not throwing as much muscle around in the fight, you need to know where to strike effectively. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, right on with, with all of that. Josiah, you were talking about how uh, South Carolina is like 48th or 49th in education. And uh, I'd like to add another scary statistic uh, to the discussion here. So the uh, so South Carolina has the third highest percentage of residents who owe medical bills. So um, I think it would be wise for the Sanders campaign to um, bring up ideas like eliminating medical debt and push hard on it. Something that's really interesting that I, I guess really hasn't been explicitly brought up yet is Iowa and New Hampshire are white states, 90% white, like is an entirely different area of, of the upcoming Nevada and South Carolina, you're going to see a, a large um, population of Latin American, Latinx people in, in Nevada, and you're about to see um, black Americans coming out and having a vote for the really the first time in this primary in South Carolina. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of expectation that Biden's going to get it. And in part, I sort of feel like that's potentially because of his association with President Barack Obama. But Really, I, I think what's important to understand or, or to keep in mind is the way that people are ready for an alternative politic. That is why Donald Trump is president currently. That's why he won. It's right. not because he had better policy. And it's not because he won in some marketplace of ideas. It's not because he had the most money. And it's not because some magical force placed him there. Well, it's, the it's, Electoral College might be a magical force. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but it's really in the main sense. I mean, it, you know, so it's the sense that I guess we have a narrow scope of politics right, where really right. the DNC and, and really within the DNC about probably like a hundred people get the main say and influence and in who gets to run and win. Right. And the DNC did not provide an alternative politic. Who would have thought to a, a neo-fascistic politic that Donald Trump brought on? And I think uh, Taylor was saying earlier that if that again gets denied, that might be the fuel for some really interesting, maybe even actual revolution. I mean, there's something cooking. Everyone can feel it. It's not, it's not hidden. It's, it's out there. Well, guys, uh, we are on the last question for uh, tonight. So 
What do you think is the most important thing that listeners out there today can do to help Bernie Sanders win South Carolina for the working class? I think that the conventional wisdom still holds true on what to do in terms of volunteering to help the campaign. Canvassing has by far the biggest impact. After that, phone banking. And by canvassing, I mean going door to door, knocking on voters' doors. Um, and the campaign can set you up with that. You can go to the North Charleston Bernie Sanders office. They'll do a quick training right before they send you out, give you a little app to see where all the doors you get assigned are. And you can go with a buddy. Me and Bones went and did it um, this past Sunday. It was awesome. Um, but canvassing, it felt when we were doing it, it felt really impactful. Right. It was pretty fun, too. Yeah. Um, Great weather for it. Yeah, it was a really nice day. Um, but... The numbers don't lie. I mean, there's been lots of analytics on this. That's by far the most impactful thing you can do with your volunteer time. Phone banking after that, and then text banking, which is probably getting even more diminished returns, if I had to just guess, based on how much text banking has happened with the campaign so far. That's one thing we've really delivered on, is there are a (laughs) lot of texters. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think those things, and then everything else you got in mind, like even like tabling at like the flea market, I think that's great. Let's keep doing it. But that's even a tier below all three of those things. So go volunteer for the campaign, do what you can. Those are the top three things in order to do. I'd concur with that. Um, Door-to-door canvassing, then phone banking, then texting, and then, you know, whatever you can do. Are you a social media influencer? Um, (laughs) Go influence people. Um, I would like to plug a awesome pledge I saw earlier called uh, Queers Against Pete at queersagainstpete.com. Yeah, uh, fuck that guy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll definitely make sure we put that in the episode description and uh, we'll update our social media uh, with with that website. Um, uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Queers Against Pete? Uh, Broadly, I think Pete has kind of maybe made it his distinguishing thing that makes him not just another white guy running for office is that he's gay. Um, and that's kind of meant to be, if you're not for it, you're homophobic, you should at least be celebrating that a gay guy is getting this close to the highest office in the land, et cetera, all the usual sort of bullshit. Um, Hugh has about 10% support among, uh, actual LGBTQ people. Um, and he's not addressing any of our material concerns, which are disproportionately not Pete Budge's concerns, which are the concerns of a well-off connected, uh, as people have said, LGBTQ CIA Candidate, um, he's uh, not very in touch with the actual needs of actual queer people in, say, a right-to-work state like South Carolina, where you can still be fired for being queer or still, you know, lack health care or still so on and so on. So, um, yeah, we would like to see some candidates who really address our needs, such as, say, Bernie Sanders. Right. Yeah, you know, I I I feel like you guys handled the uh, the more traditional ways of being helpful, and and of of course, fuck Pete, that's nonsense. <laughs> um, well, I think we'll see very shortly that his uh, he doesn't track very far outside of you know Iowa and New Hampshire. Mayo Pete will not do very well in more diverse states. I don't right, think. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, I don't think so. Um, now, I mean, it. You know, t- talk to your neighbor. Talk to your neighbor, talk to your friend, talk to someone, have Boom. a conversation. Like, you know, you like Bernie Sanders. Good start. All right. You don't want to necessarily get involved. Okay. Well, talk to that person beside you who maybe you've only had a little conversation with and, and just express, hey, this is an interesting thing. Did you see this? That's new. What is this? What do you think about this? Right. Even if they respond weird, even if now you accidentally find yourself in a kind of uncomfortable conversation for the first time in that person's life, they are hearing something positive about Someone who's who is a a self-avowed socialist, even if they maybe are a little bit more of a shadow of one than we might appreciate. But right, you know, I think that I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can do: put a face to a scary idea that someone has been so inculcated with that they truly don't even understand what it means. And I think that that goes uh, much further than a lot of people truly anticipate because. Uh, what your neighbor is doing directly affects your life and, and it's in something interesting to you. Um, and, you know, to that end, it, if, if you want to, if you want to stand on the corner and just start doing some shouting, that could be an inter- interesting approach as well. And, and maybe, <laughs> maybe 
even just maybe get involved in some local food, not bombs. You know, I'm not saying anything. That's but it. It's always an interesting to get involved hey, in. Josiah. It's an easy thing to get involved in. And hey. Why don't you tell uh, the, the listeners uh, when uh, Food Not Bombs uh, serves? You mean this one that I'm a part of? Yeah. Hey, okay. So Food Not Bombs serves on Sundays from 2 to 3 p.m. We provide free meals to anyone in shouting distance and walking distance. And I'll even walk a <laughs> meal to you if it's a little difficult for you to get to me. That's fine with me. I've done it plenty of times. Yeah, we, we cook starting at 11 at a, a, a local place that's pretty awesome for letting us sort of have access to that kitchen and reach out. We'll let you know where it is and we'd love to have you or a, or a fun and fun and strange group of people. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I think I serve about 60 people a week and that that's pretty amazing, you know, because because who are you going to trust more, the person yelling at you through the TV that I'm your enemy or the, the smiling guy with a beard giving you a, a taco? You know, it, it's that's it. Pretty clear choice to me. Yeah, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to argue with somebody that's feeding you good food. No, oh, it is, and yeah. hey, it's always good food. It's always good food. So I got a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is I'm glad that like multiple times tonight, uh, people in in this discussion have been like, yeah, Bernie could probably move a little bit further to the left. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's a symbol. He's a yeah. start. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, you got to start the finish. You know, the the racetrack somewhere. Exactly. He's the starting line, and then yeah. the finish line's a lot further to the left. But we'll get there. It's okay. Yeah, baby steps. It's the least we have to do. Yeah, <laughs> I think one thing that uh, if if you're listening out there and you're thinking about things that you might be able to do uh, to help win South Carolina for Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, I'd also like to suggest uh, giving people a ride to uh, their voting location. So a lot of people, especially a lot of folks, uh, you know, in, in certain racial or economic classes are disenfranchised because they don't have uh, reliable access to transportation to get to where they're supposed to vote. And this is by design, of course. Mm -hmm. So those of us with reliable transportation, like this is a, um, a potential way to be a big help and, and definitely aligns with like your class politics. And even if like maybe electoralism is not hugely your thing, getting somebody uh, somewhere where they need to be to, to exercise their rights. I mean, that's a pretty great opportunity, I think. Right. And uh, maybe consider becoming a poll watcher. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you why. Because Buttigieg probably would have gotten away with stealing the election in Iowa if it wasn't for like the massive poll watching team that the Sanders campaign put together. Um, they released their own statistics and, and they broke the news basically by saying, hey, Bernie Sanders won the popular vote, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh -huh. I, I think that there are a lot of different things that folks can do to uh, help get the vote out, uh, whether it's, um, you know, canvassing or whether it's phone banking or whether it's giving people rides, um, you know, pick what's best for you um, because you know what's best for you, right? Right. Um, great, guys. Well, um, I'd like to thank all of you for uh, joining me and uh, having this discussion and sharing your stories. Um, just a reminder for our listeners that the primary election is on Saturday, February 29th. So mark it in your calendars, Saturday, February 29th. Uh, you can find your voting location at scvotes.org. This is CJ Bones with Sarah, Taylor, and Josiah telling you out there that we've got a world to win. So let's make it happen. Can I get a solidarity forever? Solidarity, solidarity forever. forever. That's right. Forever. I didn't know we were singing. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I'm CJ Bones. Y'all be good. Stand up, old victims of oppression, for the tyrants be your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no rights. Let racist ignorance be ended, 
the dawn and stand beside us. We'll live together or we'll die alone. In our world, poisoned by exploitation, those who will take on that.